musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, after taking a reading of my energy levels, I'd say that I've already slipped into that laid-back summer mode that we all look forward to each year. So I'd better get on with it before I uh, start goofing off again, huh? (laughs) Well, to begin with, I want to thank our fellow saloners who have also subscribed to my magazine on Flipboard, which is a really wonderful app for your web phone. I won't try to sell you on the app itself because everybody I know that has tried it gets hooked right away. However, one of the features that they offer is to let anyone create their own Flipboard magazine for free. And you don't even have to register with them in order to read the magazines. So, a few weeks ago I created the Psychedelic Salon magazine, into which I've posted now about, uh, I guess, around 150 articles that may be of interest to you. And I note that uh, there have already been over 16,000 page flips. And at first I was trying to keep it to about a dozen or so articles and had been deleting stories each day when I finally realized that uh, I could just leave them all there as a kind of historical archive of the latest news from the world of psychedelics. So in addition to some interesting art that I've included, you'll also find articles about the latest psychedelic research, news from the war on people who use non-prescription drugs, videos on uh, topics like how to grow mushrooms, and stories about uh, the 280 legal highs that are now available, along with some cautionary tales about these new compounds. One of my favorite recent links in the magazine is about this wonderful documentary that's now streaming on Netflix, and it's titled Degenerate Art, The Art and Culture of Glass Pipes. And I highly recommend watching that particular video, uh, even if you're not a toker, because you're going to see some of the most beautiful glass art that's ever been created. Also, there are a couple of items that I wanted to add to my Flipboard magazine, but couldn't figure out how to do it yet. One is an article titled, Is Ecstasy the Key to Alleviating Autism Anxiety? And it's about the research that my friend and our fellow saloner, Alicia Danforth, is doing. And if you know anyone uh, who is dealing with autism, you may want to put them in touch with Alicia's work. One of her early findings seems to indicate that many high-functioning autistic people don't actually want to lose some of the intellectual advantages that their condition carries with it. Uh, They would simply uh, just like to be able to fit into the default world a little better. And uh, I hope I'm getting this right and not misrepresenting her work, which I've mainly heard about recently from our mutual friend, Dr. Charlie Grobe, who uh, for many years has been one of the world's leading researchers into psychedelic medicines. And of course, you can hear uh, both Alicia and Charlie in uh, past episodes here in the salon. And if you would like to hear a recent talk that Charlie gave that includes his personal story about how he came to the decision to devote his professional life to psychedelic research, then you're in luck, because now uh, the Horizon Group has created a channel on Vimeo where you can watch not only Charlie's presentation, but also those of uh, more than 30 other featured speakers as well. And uh, these people are major figures in the world of psychedelic research, uh, some of whom you have also heard here in the salon. Now, I mentioned this last week also, but if you haven't had a chance to watch the documentary-slash-interview of me that was done by Tom Huckabee and George Wada, along with a crew of several others, I hope that you'll be able to take the time to watch it. Basically, uh, in it I tell the story of what it was like in Dallas, Texas, when that city became ground zero for MDMA, or ecstasy, when it uh, hit the streets in a big way. Particularly if you've been uh, concerned about the stories the power elite are putting out about the dangers of excessive use of that substance, uh, you ought to take a look at this. Uh, I I won't give the story away here, but I think that after you watch that short video, you may rest a little easier. And uh, I'll put links to all this stuff, by the way, in the program notes for this uh, podcast, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. 
Now, my point in bringing up uh, that interview documentary again this week is that at the very end of the interview, I say a few words about the worldwide dance scene and particularly the festival culture. Well, after watching the video, my dear friend Seabrook wrote to me and told me about another video series that uh, I have to admit I'd completely missed. And the URL to it is www.thebloom, that's T-H-E-B-L-O-O-M, all one word, thebloom.tv. And uh, right now they have two videos out so far, and the production values of these festival videos are just uh, wonderful. You know, this isn't something that an old grandpa like me would put together. Uh, and I guess one of the reasons I feel it may be important for uh, me to mention the Bloom.tv is that uh, after hearing from Seabrook, I watched their two videos, and then the very next thing that I did was to preview the conversation that we're about to listen to. And uh, lo and behold, near the end of it, Michael Garfield also mentions the Bloom.tv. So uh, I figure that little synchronicity uh, should be honored. Actually, uh, there may only be one person that I'm talking to right now, or uh, maybe there are a dozen or more, but here's what I'm thinking, and uh, I'm probably going to tell you more than you want to know, but back in uh, the spring of 1965, when I was midway through my second semester of law school, and uh, doing quite well, I should add, I was second in my class at the time, well, as I was walking out my door one morning on the way to class, I found a letter in my mailbox. And uh, I still have this letter, by the way. And it was uh, from the famous author and sailor, Alan Villiers. And it was an answer to a letter that I'd written to him five months before, and which, well, I didn't have his address, so I just addressed it to Alan Villiers, Oxford, England. <laughs> and uh, actually, I never expected my letter to reach him. But uh, it did, and uh, he wrote back to me, and here's what he, he had to say. At least here's part of what he said in that letter. The bark Wandia should be ready about mid-April to sail from San Pedro for Honolulu, direct, with a scratch crew mainly of runners. You can join us, provided only that you are physically fit and accept the rough conditions aboard. You will have to get yourself here. There won't be any union conditions. It will be the manner of sea life aboard deep water, square rigged ships. Two watches only, no refrigeration, fresh water rationing, etc., and plenty of work aloft. Pay offered is $25 a week, no overtime or other such stuff. <laughs> well, uh, after my first class that morning, I went to visit the assistant dean of the law school who had become a friend of mine during the summer months when I taught sailing at the Houston Yacht Club. So I showed him the letter and asked his advice. And he said, well, if you don't take this opportunity, I'm going to quit my job and take it myself. <laughs> well, needless to say, I dropped out of school that morning, quit my night job, stored my stuff with some friends, and within two days, caught the train from Houston to Los Angeles, where I arrived with the grand total of $1.37 to my name, and uh, then I joined the ship. Now, uh, when I took this big leap, one of the things that I realized at the time is that doing so would cause me to lose my draft deferment, and that by the following winter there was little doubt but what I'd be drafted. And so by dropping out and heading to sea for this crazy adventure, I knew that law school was going to have to wait, because I knew that I would have to either join the Navy or get drafted into the Army. And uh, so that was the beginning of what has now turned out to be a wonderful life. Had I not taken that detour, I have little doubt but what right now you and I wouldn't be here in the psychedelic salon, and if a heart attack hadn't killed me by now, I'd probably be some kind of a conservative jerk of a Texas lawyer. So, what's your point, Lorenzo, you ask? <laughs> well, my point is that there are one or two of our fellow saloners right now who are out there at the end of the line. They can't find any of the others, and their friends just don't get it. Uh, they may be between boyfriends or girlfriends right now and working in some kind of a dead-end job with few prospects for excitement and no prospects for adventure ahead of them. Well, after you watch the videos on thebloom.tv, and if the festival circuit appeals to you, then my advice is to cut the cord of your current life and go to the first festival you can get to. Make some friends there and uh, see where it leads. 
Although uh, I'm no longer a fan of him or his work, Walt Disney once said something that is uh, still one of my guiding principles, and that is, take a chance and march in the parade. And so, uh, now at last, I'm finally getting to the introduction of today's podcast, which features a conversation between Matt Palomary, or Matteo, and Michael Garfield, who, if you already don't know about Michael's work, you are going to learn more about in a few minutes. As you will hear, this conversation took place last year when Michael was part of the troupe who performed a stage version of Matteo's wonderful novel, Land Without Evil. Interestingly, uh, Michael has been a fellow saloner for quite a while, and if I'm not mistaken, I first met him either at Burning Man or one of the MAPS conferences where he showed me some of the incredible psychedelic hats that he also applies his art to. So uh, now let's join Matteo and Michael and uh, hear what they had to say uh, a few weeks before the big 2012 event was due. Hi, welcome once again to the Psychedelic Salon. It's Matteo here, and I am happy to be recording this podcast from Austin, Texas, where the wonderful show, Land Without Evil, and I'm not saying that because I wrote the book, although that doesn't hurt, but it's a wonderful show that's being played here, put on by Sky Candy of Austin, and there are 30 cast members, 20 crew members, it's at the historic Stateside Theater downtown, Stateside at the Paramount. And we're in the middle of the show. We did three shows this past weekend, and we have five more coming. And it's been an awesome experience. And one of the amazing things about it is all the different talents that have come to bear to make it happen, and it's very magical. The show is magical, and the experience is magical. And one of the people who is working on the show is Michael Garfield. He's a musician and a visionary artist. And uh, he'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. But... I've known Michael more by reputation. We've never met, but we know many of the same people, uh, as it is with the tribe. And it was great to run into him and hear his part in the show. We could talk a bit about that, too. But um, I'm going to have Michael give a quick little intro spiel, and he and I are going to have a good show here and a good talk about all things consciousness and psychedelic and cosmic and art and all that good stuff. Uh, I do want to say quickly, he was just telling me that he has a background from an interest in uh, paleontology, and now he's a you know, cutting-edge visionary artist, you know, musically and visually. So I told him that he has already done time travel and gone from the Stone Age right into the Stone Age. He's bridging it. So uh, I'm going to put Michael on here, and we're going to talk a little bit, and then I want to give him, if, if you would, Michael, uh, give us just a little biospiel, you know. Uh, Tell us what you think. Sure. Thanks, Matt. It's a funny handle, so I want to just riff off of that Stone Age to Stone Age. Part of what interests me in the, the landscape of visionary culture, you know, transformational culture, people who are consciously and deliberately engaging their communities and their self-development as a microcosm of a larger evolutionary process, you know, which is really something new in the human species in the sense that not only an evolutionary march, uh, a notion of progress, but something beyond that, a, uh, an understanding that our own notion of time is itself part of this process and that our concept of time and of evolutionary change only continues to complexify and, and become manifold the more we engage it. But here we are in this, in this culture, and uh, there is something intrinsically erotic about participation in this process in the way that Rich Doyle talks about it in Darwin's Pharmacy, you know, where he's He's speaking of this seduction in the evolutionary dance between humankind and psychotropic plant species, or what he calls ecodelic plant species, in the sense that these medicines make us more aware of the unconscious ecological context within which we are embedded and, and from which we precipitate. And he talks about how the benefit of eloquence the evolutionary advantage of poetry and song that seem to have been augmented 
by our symbiotic relationships with visionary plants is its own kind of seduction in that you have the species barrier being crossed and information and experience being exchanged across phyla, across kingdoms. So the more we understand this as something that occurs over and over and over again, for example, in that first endosymbiotic union that created a nucleated cell out of free-living bacteria that now live together within one of them, but functioning all as necessary, I hate to use the phrase, components, uh-huh. because that's an elemental thing. Yeah. But that this happens over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my interest is in a way to navigate conversations about the emergence of new layers of selfhood and of community in a way that walks this tightrope between a pathological and absolutist overvaluation of the individual or the collective. You know, this I'm you know, I don't want to see this Ayn Rand objectivism on one hand, but I also don't want to see this Borg hive mind on the other. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of the oneness conversation these days seems to be between polarized extremes that are taking shots at uh, you know straw opponents as far as this thing goes. I think it's really important that our art and our entertainment and our sacred and celebratory media all reflect this understanding that the individual and the collective create one another. And that's my interest in this. You know, you, when you started talking about the connectedness of all consciousness and species and, you know, uh, symbiotic relationships, it just threw me right into the jungle doing ayahuasca dietas. I've really experienced that directly, being one with it all. And the thing about it is is that everything is one and everything is also unique. So, you know, anytime you go into the polarities, anybody, not, you know, you're talking about the two polarities, they're missing the point, it's in the middle. And so we are, you know, we are just as much a collective as we are one. And I think that, you know, one of the cosmic principles that I've discovered personally for me is that the best way that you can help other people, the absolute best way you can help other people is to love yourself. Because then your energy spreads out. And how can you love anybody else unless you learn to love yourself first? Nobody else will if you won't. <laughs> so my point is that that, that makes you... in more an individual and what you have to offer for the gift of who you are and, and the energies that you can you can move. It's individual and collective at the same time. It's it, it can be both. It's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. It's being and not being. It's freaking cosmic. So, you know, one of the things um, I wanted to touch on which struck me when I was looking at your webpage is uh, you have a quote at the top. By the way, this is michaelgarfield.blogspot.com Calm. Go there for some osmo, uh, os- listen to me, osmic, osmic, cosmic music and art. <laughs> uh, but we've been working together for uh, about a week now. We're having a good time. It's great. So um, Michael has this saying, which I love. It, it uh, says, "Everything is equally art, science, and spiritual practice." I want to do a little thing on that and send you off your yeah. on this topic. But I've done a lot with sacred geometry and uh, studied extensively in my new book The Infinity Zone uh, is about that and one of the things I discovered uh, particularly in ancient Egypt, Egypt in their art and their temples where there is very precise artwork and mathematics is that in Western culture uh, we've really tried hard in our divide and conquer search and destroy method of intellectual exploration and we've separated art and we've separated science and we've separated religion or, and or spiritual practice. Well, in ancient Egypt, art and science and spiritual practice were all one and the same. It was all about the beauty and the archetype and the, and the deeper message that really goes beyond language that's being given. The Greeks took much from the ancient Egyptians, and one of the things uh, they said is that truth is beauty. That's why if you look at a, what's considered to be the most beautiful female face, if you do a mathematical analysis, it's all sacred geometry. And music is geometry and time and, 
and working with time and space and working with energy. So the point I'm making here is that statement, for me, proves truth is beauty. And when you're expressing art that really touches people, whether it's spoken or visual or acting, um, that's what you're doing. It's a sacred act. I think it's useful for us to differentiate art and science and spiritual practice and to recognize them as distinct lenses in a way that a lot of ancient societies did not. <clears throat> There's something beautiful about a, and I mean this neutrally, but a naive view in which your process of inquiry and your process of expression and your process of worship are all bound together into you know a whole but for us in a postmodern world we have this opportunity to choose to look at anything through just one of those methods you know in oh, yeah. in having expanded we have new opportunities to limit ourselves and focus our method you know whether that be you know a method of art or science or spiritual practice, you know, and this is something that, you know, I got out of the integral philosophy community, you know, which is riddled with its dramas, but also did a lot for me to help me understand how everything can be examined from multiple perspectives simultaneously, and how by doing so, we discover new interference patterns between perspectives that enrich and inform our understanding and increase our efficacy in the world, you know, that integrated practices, you know, trained on a, a common goal are more effective in the same way that, you know, integrated methods of study yield to deeper insight. So I like finding the ways to crystallize and condense the these kind of understandings in the same way that Ania from the Endymion books by Dan Simmons. You know, you're going to talk about some truly awesome visionary science fiction that blended science and art and spirituality together in a really compelling way. In uh, Dan Simmons' series, this, this uh, messiah, uh, you know, 600 years in, in our future, narrows her Sermon on the Mount down to two words, you know, choose again, which is a, such a profound distillation in the sense that it expresses the endless reform of the scientific process, it expresses the endless creativity of the artistic process, and it expresses an endless forgiveness that we recognize in our experience with the divine. You know, so it's that kind of thing that I'm trying to capture, although I haven't nailed it in as few as two words. It's, uh, it's a challenge, you know, as a writer for me, trying, I'm always wanting to capture, capture a uh, truly visionary experience, which is multiple, multidimensional. It's more than parallel, it's multidimensional. There's lots of things happening at the same time. And then distill it into a serialized language in words and sentences so that other people can listen to that little transmission and upload it and hopefully have some sense of what is trying to be conveyed. But I think most really hardcore artists, when they get into the zone of playing or performing or creating, they kind of set their ego aside and just let it flow, like really tap into it and uh, create something that's greater than if their ego is involved. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said about the letting go and uh, pushing the limits. You know, I was also, I want to mention a little bit more about the uh, the uh, Egyptians, because yeah, this relates to something else you were talking about in terms of holographic things. In Luxor, Egypt, there's a temple of the anthropocosmic man, which is a very precise mathematical representation of the human body. And they say that it is also a representation of the cosmos uh, that we are within, so that human, a human body is actually a microcosmos of the macrocosmos which I think I tend to believe in when you think of the gazillions of kinds of different cells and even bacteria and animals that all work together to make us exist in this moment that we're passing through together. Um, it's quite a powerful thing. So through all that and through my jungle diets, now I'm leaning toward what the Egyptians say 
um, about every day. Every day is everything you do is sort of an act of spirituality. I don't want to say worship, but acknowledgement is probably a better way to put it. Uh, you know, acknowledging spirit, and if your body is a temple to the divine, and we are truly all connected to the oneness, then everything you put in your mouth is an offering to divinity. But some things you take in might be an offering to divinity, and they might be a lot of fun, but they might not be so good. So there's a balance there, but you know, you know, take things too extreme. But I mean, it's the whole point of that: the being. We are stardust, and we're the microcosm. Well, if you're if you're being attentive and acknowledging and respectful, then you're not likely to put things that are bad for you in your mouth because you're honoring a greater intelligence than yourself that expresses itself through the desires of your yes. body. And a real deep listening is central to that kind of practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, good. Well said, well said. Uh, interestingly enough, doing this show together, it, it's a bit of that experience with all the multiple contributions from everybody. Michael does a great uh, acoustic guitar, and you do this distortion thing, electronic distortion thing on it, or it's like, a, could you, you want to explain that? That's Surely. Very, very cool, very, very cool. It's nice to get my ego out of the way with this project and participate in the body of something greater, you know, after years as a solo artist being able to work with a group of musicians as one corner, literally on the stage, just over in the corner while all of this amazing circus work and and musical theater is going on around us. What I'm personally doing is routing an acoustic guitar through a series of hardware effects, delays, pitch shifters, beat slicers, filters and, and loopers, and playing it percussively and also with an Ebo, which is an electromagnet that vibrates the so, magnetic pickup itself. Is that the black thing? Yeah. That's the thing I was curious about, because I saw you were doing some really trippy shit with that. That was... Really... You, get some, you get some synthesizer tones out of that that you wouldn't expect out of an acoustic guitar. So we've been playing with that in pitch shifters to give a real uh, Mysterium Tremendum you know, sawtooth low end to some of the music for this play, you know, in, in these moments of... Uh, death and fever and exhaustion, you know, visionary jungle experiences. It's been pretty awesomely apropos, I gotta say. Yeah, I think too, the whole thing, I'm getting goosebumps now, so he's saying some important shit here in my universe. <laughs> but um, my friend Mick Mashbeer used to be lead guitarist for Alice Cooper, and he has an all-steel acoustic guitar. Not a pedal steel, but I mean, it's an acoustic guitar, but it's all steel. And he gets these, like, otherworldly sounds out of it. Like, when he does some slide stuff, I mean, it's just like, it's like the mothership's coming in, man. You know? So I, I get a sense of that, but you got this little edge with what you're doing with the electronics, where you can do this really cool distortion. There's, there's a lot of, in the show, there's a lot of shamanic experiences and visionary experiences. And, like, one of the characters, Poet, man, he's awesome. He's medicine. He represents the medicine of the jungle, and he dances around at certain times to, to help heal or have a battle with death. All, all these elements have come into play, so the music that Michael and the other people have been doing has really added to the uh, whole effectiveness, the, the emotional tone of it, you know, all of it. So I was really curious about your technique and what you were doing there. Yeah, it's fun. i got to say also that uh, you know Norm Ballinger, who is the other acoustic guitarist in the show, I'm working directly with him yeah. for most of this, and then also... Uh, Morgan Sorn, he's been doing some vocal looping and some of his songs are in the show and it's been a real pleasure to work with him. And then we're also working with one of the dancers, one of the actors in the show, the shaman. Chris. Yeah, is uh, Chris Lundberg or or Wonder Nexus. And he's done a lot of the the musical percussion programming and soundtracking for the show as well. And it's been a real pleasure to work with all of them. Amanda Therese has been singing with us on some of our tracks. Oh, yeah. A really, a really gorgeous, trippy Ave Maria that we're doing oh, while just, yeah. the main character is falling under the spell of this jungle sickness. Yeah. So it's yeah. been a lot of fun. I got When I heard her sing that, I got goosebumps. One of the fascinating things for me personally is that this book was originally published in 99, and it's gone through lots of different battles and it's been moving steadily but not in any big numbers and so um, the power of having all these wonderful artists not only get the message but do an interpretation on it and then put all their hearts into it it's just I can't even 
articulate how awesome that is. Uh, it's a wonderful, uh, truly collaborative experience. So, uh, Michael and I were talking about the, all kinds of different stuff, and we thought we'd hit on a few different topics. But, you know, one of the things about the show that struck me, the way it all came about, is that we were truly sort of, here we are doing a stage, acrobatic stage show about visionary experience and death transformation and rebirth literally on the eve of 2012, you know. And um, there's the whole, all kinds of different people getting all spun up in all kinds of different ways all around it. But one of the key people who uh, started our collective thought along that way was Terrence McKenna and uh, you know he made some predictions and you know prophecies and things I think Michael has some thoughts on Mr. T and uh, you know his impressions of here we are living it right now we're all going through it whatever whatever it is or isn't whatever it is or isn't indeed because by the time you're listening to this it's 2013 and we're still here and we're all here and uh, life is Probably crazier than it's ever been, but here we are, you know, and I really admire the bardic mythological narrative that so many people have presented to us and that, uh, to his credit, I feel that Terrence did a remarkably consistent job of reminding people was just his own freewheeling, free jazz, world creation maybe logic. I mean, he wasn't quite as militant about it as Robert Anton Wilson in terms of refusing to allow himself to buy the story that he was selling. But nonetheless, I think that um, I never got the impression that an asymptotic approach to infinite novelty meant anything other than the movement of our actual axis into something that was hidden from that geometrical purview. By, by which I mean, I think that when something tends to go over the horizon, like it has for so many people with respect to the future in general and you know the way that that conversation has constellated around this particular date. And we're sitting here having this conversation on 12, 12, 2012. That's right, 12, 12, 12. We're speaking to you from the past, past, past. And it's a new moon in Sagittarius tonight. And I've always considered that, I mean, being an adult is over the, you know, the event horizon. doesn't mean the end of the world. I'm not saying anything new as far as this stuff goes. I think that it's, um, in 2013 and beyond, I will continue to appreciate Terrence in particular for giving us a constructive mythology that having been proven literally wrong, we can still adapt in its archetypal and symbolic contours to the texture of our own complexifying multidimensional relationship with time. You know, that we, we can understand that yes, there are, you know, that when we're about to cross over into the completely ineffable, that's when it's time for us to add a dimension perspective by which we've basically like maxed out on our ability to mentally understand things as a species is what it comes down to. We now are using supercomputers and crunching big data in such a way that our new mathematical proofs require a model that cannot be understood by any single person. And therefore, even though the machines tell us it's true and it has its physical consequences in our applied sciences, we have no way of really understanding it or saying whether it's right or wrong. It's a total sea change from the way it used to be when an entire theoretical construct could be held in the mind of one person. This is really pushing us over the edge here. And when, when I talk about the convergence of art and science and spiritual practice, I'm speaking to this specifically. You know, the asymptotic approach of science to a state of shrugging worship at, you know, a, a mystery that's growing faster than our knowledge. And then the total liberation that we experience as a species when, you know, having been, you know, stripped of our delusions at total understanding, we're free to 
use science as a way of expressing our acknowledgement, our recognition of that divine mystery. You know, science becomes an art form because we're no longer attempting to get the ultimate question answered so much as we are allowing an open-ended exploration to say what it will about our species and to what. You know, so in that sense, I think, you know, Terence was right. We are looking at a, a major boundary dissolution uh, here between people and each other, between the organic and the technological, but it's not in his own extreme sense an ultimate or a final dissolution. It's just one that, for whatever reason, he couldn't see beyond. And I'll have my own, and one day I'll be asking my kids how to use this and that. And uh, so the story goes, you know. And so it goes and so it goes. You know, um, in my experience, I like what you had to say about sort of our minds taking it as far as we can go, sort of knowledge. And to me, we're, we've been maxed out on the intellectual side, um, you know, the dominant male intellectual side with our science and with our way of living and all that stuff, which is why we're whacked out and that part of this change that's coming is really integrating the feminine, which is tied into the uh, the intuition, the conceptual, the, the, the visual, the musical. You know, one of the things like, I, I wrote about this in my book, this new book, The Infinity Zone, about I'm a drummer. So I have to know about beats and counting and that, with that sort of left intellectual side of my brain but then I play with my feeling on my right side and so I can learn all those things and I can practice my riffs and do everything. But then when I play, I forget it. I just play. And to me, that's a real merging of both sides. Anybody who's very much in touch with their creative side is because their right and left brains are getting more equal time as opposed to squishing out the right brain. So I think that um, part of the change is that people are adapting more of their right brain. You know, it's more... Uh, balanced, you know, as opposed to just the intellectual side. Uh, I was curious about your thoughts about that. Uh, the whole left brain, right brain thing for me is another apparently not entirely true useful metaphor as far as I understand it. You know, one of the things I don't claim to be is a, a neuroscientist or uh, even especially well-read on that particular topic, but it's my understanding that even though this has kind of slipped into the way that we think about and speak about these things, that the whole brain really is involved in most thought, unless, you know, you have a stroke and get it knocked out. And that's just helpful in terms of a reconceptualization, healing and internal dissociation. I mean, even though it is anatomically true that we have these two hemispheres and then uh, connective fiber, you know, the corpus callosum that is bigger in some people, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in, than in others and bigger on average in women than it is in men. So we have this new fodder for conversation about the physiological, psychological differences between men and women, etc. I I think it's just really beautiful to remember that thought is not occurring on one side of the brain or the other thought isn't even occurring exclusively in the brain, that thought seems to be something that is not only occurring throughout the entire body, you know, through not just the nervous systems, but their interaction with the immune system and, you know, biophotonic communications between DNA within the body and then between bodies, but then also the you know, gestural, kinesthetic, somatic relationships we have to our environments. Like, for example, they found that if people were required to keep their hands flat on a table, it took them long to come up with answers to questions in a psychological survey than it did if they were allowed to gesture. That people were able to compute mathematics mm -hmm. faster. And so there's, there's a sense in which the facial and the relational are built into our thinking so deeply that we have to move in order to think. And that's not going to be strange to, I think, most listeners, especially people who recall the whole thing about getting out of a creative block by taking a walk, mm -hmm. you know. 
incidentally, that has another somatic dimension to it because your curiosity and the whole dopamine circuit involved with getting you out of your cave to find a new food source or a new mate rather than staying within your comfort zone in order to ensure your security, um, that circuit is pretty much ubiquitous in animals. And, you know, the drive to intoxicate, the drive to allow oneself to be seduced into this boundary dissolving relationship with some intoxicant species or another, which occurs in ants and birds and elephants and all. That seems to be a, a worldwide thing. So when you're going out on a walk to get over a creative block, you see a little bit further than you would indoors. You know, a lot of people, they get stuck in a rut because you're in a cubicle or, you know, 18 inches from a glowing rectangle for your entire day. Or, you know, even worse, the mobile computing thing, you're, you know, you're just looking down. I, I suspect a generation of people with occipital disorders, you know, from this, it's, it's almost like we're a, a generation of monks walking around with our heads down all the time, mm -hmm. you know, and our hands in this gesture of prayer, holding the sacred bauble. But at any rate, you get out, you take a walk, and maybe you, you look across the lake or across the hills, whatever the case may be, there's a horizon, there's a, suddenly your world is just a little bit bigger, and it calls you out of yourself, and it calls you out of that reflective thought and into this more expansive discourse with uh, a greater palette to explore. Mm -hmm. So there's something about, I think, recognizing that thought is distributed throughout yourself and the environment and your relation with the environment. There are all these different ways of slicing that, mm -hmm. but it comes down to, I think, that is my... Jnana yoga, I don't know if that's exactly how you'd pronounce it, wow. but Jnana yoga is the use of the mind to transcend the mind. And for me, that's how I come at this understanding of oneness, mm -hmm. by conceptually hacking myself so that I, I recognize me as part of this continuity of you know quantum fields or uh, gestural somatic conceptual relationships or electromagnetic exchanges, or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to be inspired once you're thinking in that space. Mm -hmm. So all the different thoughts that come are all different energies, whether they're a visual or emotional or intellectual or, or whatever. And um, a mystic philosopher by the name of Gurdjieff, I don't know if you've ever heard of Gurdjieff or not, mm -hmm. uh, he and Carl Jung... Um, have this concept that I've been working with that works well for me and, 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 uh, and I've discovered it throughout cultures. And it says that there are three, we have three bodies, a intellectual body, a moving body, and a feeling body, or an emotional body. And in the Inca tradition, those are manifested as the three worlds. So the upper world is the condor, which is love. The middle world is the puma, or the jaguar, which is power. In the lower world is the serpent, which is gold, which is wisdom. Okay, so it's a rose color, sort of an electric blue color, and then a gold color. And they all combine it, sort of like this electric ultraviolet. So we're generally, as we develop in the world, we come in as essence and we develop into personalities, which is part of our growth. Where we follow our feelings and our instincts and our, all those things. And we develop a personality. And then we identify with the personality. And then we start to think that we are the personality, but we're actually not the personality. We are, the, we, we are really the creator of the personality. So things are kind of backwards because the ego is ruling. So then when you learn to understand how the ego works, then you shift from being lower directed to higher directed and you go back to being sort of essence directed instead of uh, ego directed. And then you start to really... It's kind of like that's the point where you've been knocking on the door of the spirit in the other worlds and it knocks back kind of a deal where the synchronicity start to happen and all those things. But what, what they say is that we, we, we all tend to lean on one of our bodies more than the others. Males tend to lean more on the intellectual. It's how we've survived in the world. Women tend to rely on their emotions. So we all tend to lean on one and the other two don't work out. So when you get stuck artistically or problem-solving, if you do get up and take a walk, it shifts you from that one, moves the energy, which is shamanism is about moving energy, and you go into that one. 
And then things seem to work out because by, by walking, you rebalance yourself energetically. So that's been something I've been studying for quite a while and reading, and it seems to be bearing out true for me so far at this point. And, it, and you know, you, you get to the point where you're more aware than you respond with all three simultaneously. You're emotionally there, you're intellectually there, and you're physically, you're all, you're really aware and in the moment. That's like the, the, the height of awareness that you can have. People can get upset and then go running off and then think about it, or people can get upset and think about it, then go running off. You know, we tend, we tend to go in all these different orders, but if you get them all happening together, then it's boom, it's a thing. I'm not sure if that fits in with your perspective of... Uh, I would call that a, uh, an alchemical movement towards integrated practice, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're feeling, thinking, doing with your entire body-mind, a mind and a body recognized as angles on one thing that's firing on all cylinders, mm-hmm. as it were. Yeah. It's a very beautiful thing. I think that's, that's a, uh, a notion of human potential that has been dangling before us for some time. And it's interesting that it seems to be coming to the fore now in such a way, enabled by our interaction with an increasingly accessible and increasingly far-reaching collective of the human experience. That's another thing that, you know, various psychedelic transhumanist prophets have been on about for since my parents were children. Really, even before, I mean, I'm reading Olaf Stapleton's Star Maker, you know, published in 1937. And this is truly visionary work of science fiction that shows the increasing endosymbiotic inclusion of entities as a kind of, I hate to use teleology, but, you know, to look at it from an evolutionary perspective, teams outcompete individuals. And there is, for the purposes of social adhesion within teams, there is a drive towards ever greater bandwidth and therefore, you know, intimacy. So you have these ways of looking at the bodies of these beings, which over evolutionary timescales come together into greater and greater bodies that relate to each other with more and more emotional depth because the emotional layer of this is a uh, very spontaneous and high-bandwidth communicative medium. And then, you know, the increasing diversity of a community creates an increasing diversity of social niches and a deepening of the self sense and the uniqueness of the individuals participating in that community, but also a deepening social self as well. So you have this unusual, uh, what seems like a paradox to the modern mind, which is that, as Pierre Terre de Chardin said, that collectivization leads to hyperpersonalization. So we don't really have to fear from evolutionary dynamics themselves that we're moving into you know ever and ever greater selfishness or ever and ever greater loss of self into you know in this hive mind i mean it, the herd mentality has been with us for millions of years that's nothing new you know we're we're actually growing beyond it into an even more crystalline form of society as far as I'm concerned Mm -hmm. but there it is you know one in which you know the text message is replaced with uh, the direct induction of a thought from one person to the other you know in whatever way that might be achieved it's something that both the new age community and the Silicon Valley are converging on this you know this idea however we believe it will be you know the means by which we accomplish it Telepathy seems to be right on the cusp for us, you know, and whether that's a remembrance, you know, of an innate human capacity or whether it's the reactivation of some previously inarticulate set of genetic sequences or whether it's a dermal patch, you know, that is extremely sensitive to the electromagnetic fields of your brain it's coming to envelop us in this 
necessarily new sense of self because the way in which our own selfhood is constructed out of the experiences of other people already is only going to intensify and accelerate. And so, I mean, if that's not, if that hasn't, uh, you know, catastrophically cascaded into some radically new form of organization by the time you're listening to this talk, then um, I think it would nonetheless be pretty hard for anyone listening to deny this by looking at the same trends that I do. Would you consider it? You know, what keeps on in my mind is the, the word blossoming. Because, you know, every flower is beautiful in its own right, and the bush is beautiful. And so all these things, like you say, you know, remembering or uh, coming together. I like to think of it almost like activating. Okay, let's kick in the warp drive, second thrusters now, you know. We're going <laughs> to hit the crab nebula next or whatever. Anyway, uh, you know, I want to touch with you, Yvonne, a little bit. Was because uh, I've been in and out, but not as much as you. You're you're a, a member, so to speak. Bad word. You're part of the tribal culture, and um, you've done a lot of events and, and talks and things like that. You want to touch a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, you have any events coming up? Uh, I know you've done some. You got some big ones coming, right? There are a number of. Uh you know, small things going on throughout the the spring that I'm going to be mixed up in both locally and regionally. People can go to my website for that. But yeah, as, as far as transformational culture goes, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think all human culture, and I, sorry to be such a stickler with words here, but I, I do so love playing with them. You know, I, I think that uh, tribal culture is something that I want to generalize because all human culture is tribal you know, we're all kind of operating on the same primate OS, as it were, and, you know, the hierarchical but Some of us stuff. are more tribal than others. Definitely. Um, and, you know, the beautiful irony of it is that, you know, so many of the these tribal dynamics remain in even the most uh, sophisticated human societies, and not necessarily in an unhealthy form, but nonetheless, they remain. And so it's the adult grows out of the child and all that. You know, the child remains. and It should be a beautiful thing to anybody that we are going to wake up into some planetary supermind as a uniquely primate origin planetary supermind. And if we encounter other god minds hailing us from other worlds in a few hundred years, we are still going to have something unique to contribute to the dialogue but as far as, you know, participation in, in what people like uh, Jeet K. Lung and the uh, Bloom series, you know, this documentary series on transformational festivals, um, they call it the transformational festivals because, again, it's a specific kind of celebration. And it's one in which uh, we are rising to the occasion and we make a deliberate effort to challenge ourselves to confront our daemon, you know, to reach into and beyond. It's almost like kind of a Gene Roddenberry thing, really. I can see, you know, a Star Trek Planetary Federation coming out of these, the noble, nonviolent, expressive ideals of a maker's party. People who are, who are really inspired to come together and, and literally fabricate their own communities. I think right now the Part of the problem with transformational culture, as it's been defined, is that, uh, and this I guess pegs me as a particular kind of techno-optimist, but I think there are a few things that are really going to enable uh, human civilization to take the next step into creative and responsible participation in the planetary ecosystem. And one of them is home fabrication, the maturation of 3D printing, into a you know more or less general service where ideas can be shared freely online and designs can be shared freely for you know recipes and electronics and you know whatever the mind can devise you know and that's going to take a long time but the closer we get to that the more we're going to see communities that like one of the things that William Irwin Thompson again talked about that we can turn on and off our buildings like lights, that we move beyond this prototypical ephemeropolis of Black Rock City into being able to 
create these ecological vesicles and just erect and remove cities on the fly. You know, this that same kind of mind frame that's going to be looking into things like plastic eating bacteria, you know, so that wherever we go, we leave no trace. And that's a really compelling resolution to the Fermi paradox, you know, why it is that we don't see traces of alien civilizations. You know, the really fun hypothesis about that is that a sufficiently advanced civilization is indistinguishable from its ecology, that we become so thoroughly integrated that our waste signature completely disappears. Wouldn't that be great? And then the other thing um, that falls right into that is new energy sources, you know, specifically zero point energy sources, you know, whether or not you believe in certain of the unified theory conceptions from which these ideas uh, are derived, there should be some ability, you know, on an electrically active body to derive passive electricity from that body, you know, so why that kind of system hasn't been more thoroughly implemented on our planet. It would just be nice to see, and I I think, you know, you and I may live to see an age in which industry and energy production, agriculture have all been miniaturized and are portable. And, you know, at that point, we by necessity move into an age where we realize transparently that the limiting resource for us has always been our imagination and that the real value that a person brings to their society is their imagination. The real contribution is their vision for what they can contribute, you know? And if that's a little abstract, I mean, well, we live in our imaginations, don't we? That's what uh, Einstein said that, you know, there's nothing really without imagination because imagination is sort of the... uh, for lack of a better word, it's kind of the, the font of creativity. You know, my friend David Brin is a science fiction writer. He wrote the movie, the book for the movie, The, uh, the Post, in which he hated it. it wasn't didn't follow the book, but it, he's been around a while. He's been a great supporter. And he told me years ago, he looked at me and he said, well, we're living science fiction, aren't we? And that really stuck with me. And the more I see it, more and more and more, you know, it's really true. We are living it. And it all came about out of somebody's mind. Somebody had to think about flying in the air before attempting it. And, and all these things that have happened technologically, somebody had to think about it. You know, here we are now watching videos on our on our freaking cell phones. You know, I mean, it's here. You know, it was a big deal back when the movie 2001 was made and he had a video phone. That was like a really big deal. That was so cutting edge. But we are living it now. While we're on the whole science fiction writer deal, the William Gibson quote that... The future is already here. It's just distributed unevenly. And I I like to think that uh, transformational culture is uh, a skunk works. It's, you know, it's an experimental island set aside kind of uh, off in the corner so that it it has room to breathe and grow and devise new things. The best ideas always come from the fringes. I resemble that remark. Not necessarily for the best ideas, but the ideas. <laughs> um, we're getting close to uh, closing the show, but a couple more things I want to touch on. I think you just touched on it a little bit. We've been talking about deconstruction of organic and technology. Um, I know you were touching upon that. Is there more you want to add to that? Yeah. Uh, shout out to Bruce Damer on this one. Yo, what's up, homie? <laughs> I can't agree with all of his bright-eyed California rhetoric, but Kevin Kelly's book, What Technology Wants, is nonetheless one of the more lucid expositions of this kind of thing that has made itself obvious to me in my life, where he talks about technology as a seventh kingdom of life. Hmm. And, you know, he looks at the world of the maid as an epiphenomenon of geology and physics in the same way that organic life is something that seems to be self-organizing on our planet. It's from an entropic perspective. You know, evolutionary processes are a way for energy to find its most efficient distribution through this environment. And the machines are a metabolic extension of organic species. So why should we 
consider them as a distinct category in that sense, as you know, a form of non-life, which is really interesting because he never really comes out and says it, but he is essentially a closet animist who views the entire world as alive and self-organizing. Mm-hmm. And personally, I, don't, I see nothing wrong with that, although it might have been diced out by his editors. So in that sense, I don't really think that it's so much about us approaching a point where we're merging with our machines. Uh, we've never been separate from our machines. We've never been separate from the mineral world. We are made out of rocks. And it's that continuity, that understanding that this is one thing that I think provides the grist for the restorative vision we need in order to cooperate as a solidified entity on this planet. Yeah, yeah I just uh, see it that way. I love that vision you gave uh, just a little bit ago about... Uh an advanced culture being completely integrated with nature, that's a really wonderful, that, that's full-on shamanism, but um, it's really a wonderful vision. Animals do that instinctually, and nature balances things out, but for us with all of our, what did you say, waste footprint, however you put it, all that crap, right? To be able to be integrated into it and be advanced in that way, I think is a really wonderful vision. Well, that's another William Irwin Thompson thing. You know, He talks about how at every epical moment in civilization you know every moment where we've jumped from one type of social organization to the the next most intricate type whatever was considered uh evil you know in that sense like a moral waste product or you know taboo or what have you um the the wasted the rejected you know whatever it is that we throw away in that particular level of society becomes integrated into a quote-unquote cradle to cradle cyclical self-consuming flow in the next society. So it's pretty clear that where we are now is that we're on the cusp of learning to devour our waste products as we understand them. We've been on for, we've been talking for about an hour, so we can we can head to a close up here. Yeah. Um, a couple of things I just want to say is it's michaelgarfield.blogspot.com Michael Garfield, all, all is one word. And he's got some really cool music and some really cool artwork and there's some items of clothing which had caught my eye before, some really cosmic, uh, tricked-out hats, man. Uh, best way I can put it. But if you go to his website, so check him out. Michael, uh, you, want, you have any more final words you want to say that uh, for the cosmic brothers and sisters out there? Well, thanks for listening. And if you care to get a hold of me, Don't hesitate to do so. You all have a wonderful day. All right. Thank you. Thank you for this uh, special episode of the Psychedelic Salon pre-end of the world, 12-12-12, in Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And now I'm going to close for today and leave you with some new music that Michael is about to release. The track that I'm going to play is titled Elusis and is from an as-yet-unreleased album that was recorded live in Austin, Texas earlier this year. And Michael tells me that I can let you know that you are now hearing this for the first time here on The Salon. And uh, so be sure to check out his website also, which you can get to via michaelgarfield.net. And besides a lot of music and art, you're also going to find his schedule there for some of the uh, appearances he will be making in the near future, which include Sonic Boom in Colorado in just a couple of weeks, and the Activation Music and Arts Festival in North Carolina, as well as Rootwire 2K13 in Ohio, which are both being held in August. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Into the light, into the light of bare naked truth.